Well, if you would again, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 5. And we will be reading the entirety of chapter 5 and then to chapter 6, verse 8. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he had fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Then, Kenan had lived, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, uh, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. 
And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were from of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only wicked continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, Father, now for the preaching of your word. We pray that as we study this genealogy and as we consider um, all that led up to uh, the flood of Noah, that we may learn and understand what is happening here, but also that we may see Jesus that we may be encouraged by your gospel and the hope that you bring, even in judgment. Bless our time in the word we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so the narrative of Genesis um, has brought us now to a new section in chapter 5, a new toldoth. Uh, You might recall that there are ten toldoths uh, in Genesis. These are the, the, the uh, the book markers, if you will. Uh, They begin uh, with the familiar, these are the generations of. But in this case, you'll note there's a descriptor added, that is the word account or book, or perhaps record, depending on your translation of preference. This is the only place where this is included. And so what we have here is a record of the generations of Adam, uh, the second toldoth or book. Of Genesis. Now, the first book began back in chapter 2 the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that was concluded with the generations of the wicked line of Cain, the line which is in alliance with Satan. Here, the section returns again to Adam to record the righteous line which. Uh, comes through Seth and then concludes, uh, at least in what we've read, with Noah. And then, of course, continues on through the whole of the human race who would have their restart after the flood. And so what we see here is what humanity looks like when there's a minimum of grace extended. A minimum in that humanity has come to a place where every inclination of his heart is wickedness all of the time. Sin and depravity was spreading like a gangrenous infection throughout all of creation, destroying lives and bringing the world into further ruin. Nevertheless, there's still some grace. As there is a line of right, a righteous generation given through, uh, which would come through redemption. And so even as uh, there is at this point in redemptive history a, a maximum of sin, a, a maximum of depravity, God has provides hope 
a righteous remnant through which he will save his people in an immediate sense, through Noah, but in an ultimate sense, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we're pointed forward to uh, this one to come. And so let's jump into our study. We'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, uh, these first two verses of this told off are similar, are, are something of a, there's something of a prologue. Uh, they, uh, they tra- it traces back to the beginning, reminding the reader of the creation of humanity. And so what it's doing is tying the line of Seth directly to the line of Adam. Now really, this is truly the line of Adam. Cain has now been rejected. Okay? Mankind, we are reminded, is made in God's image. They are made male and female. God had blessed them. He had named them man when they were created. From from here, the narrative moves to the birth of Seth, the son that Adam had fathered, who, it says, is after his own likeness. So Moses, as our narrator, is tying the significance of this genealogy to creation. He's he's wanting to point us back to... This is really where... The, the line is. God's purpose for his image bearers will be realized through Seth, not through Cain. Seth's line is included with Adam's, Cain's is not. Cain and his line have been cast out. They are not part of the covenant community. A human life stands in in the descent of God through Adam, through Seth, and the sons which come through Seth. And so they're the ones who are going to receive blessing. And so after this brief prologue and a review of what's happened up to this point, uh, from verses 3 through 32, we are given the genealogy of Seth's line, from starting with Adam uh, down to Noah. Now, this chapter contains ten paragraphs which are structured identically with pattern. With, and this is the structure. There's a pattern of name, age, additional years after the birth of a son, acknowledgement of the birth of other children, so sons and daughters, the total, uh, totality of the lifespan, and then finally it ends with a refrain, and he died. So each one you know, you know as I read it, uh, you noted that this happened, but there's some exceptions, which you may have noticed as I was reading. Um, as a side note, we tend to sort of skip over the genealogies because, well, this is the same thing over and over again, just different names. But if you read them, particularly if you read it out loud, you wait a minute, there's a few things here that's different. And we're going we're gonna to get to that in a, a little bit. Well, this, this genealogy parallels and contrasts with the previous genealogy we had seen of Cain. Whereas Cain's family did various great things, in the case of Lamech, wicked Lamech, who was a murderer and boastful, um, the family of Seth just simply lived, had children, and then died. We're given the length of their years. We don't get the length of Cain's family years. 
Now again, before you get too nervous, we're not going to go into great detail into every single generation of the genealogy. Uh, That would be too laborious both for the listener and for the preacher. That being said, though, there are some general ideas we want to see in order to orient ourselves uh, to what's going on in the text. First of all, it's important to not get confused between the two genealogies, which in some cases have the exact same names. Whereas Lamech in Cain's line is wicked, Lamech in Seth's line was righteous and even prophesied concerning his son, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. Next we'll note that the narrator highlights certain generations with certain numbers or, or changes from the pattern. For instance, the seventh generation in Cain's line was wicked Lamech. But in Seth's line, the seventh generation is Enoch, who walked with God and lived 365 years and then was taken. And so in each case, the seventh generation is, is sort of set apart in the pattern. But these, these two stand in opposition to one another. This is important to note. And so we'll also note that there's significance to both the seventh generation and the tenth generation in both genealogies. In addition, it should also be understood that this gene- genealogy is not exhaustive. It is not intended to be understood that way. Uh, there were other people born and other people who, are li- who lived who are not named. And in some cases, there may have been other sons born in between those who are named. And now, this is at least possible because in Hebrew, the term fathered can be used in a general sense of a direct relation, which is to say that it's at least possible that Moses constructs the, these two ten generations with a teaching point in mind. Now, it's also possible these were the ten, and that's, that's fine too. But there may be, may be other people as well. The point, though, is to highlight the righteous line of Seth from which God's promises would be realized. God will work through His chosen line and through His chosen people to bring about the salvation which He had promised and which is ultimately realized in Christ. And thus, the genealogical record then pauses on Noah. So you have the generations, and then we get to Noah, and, and really there's a pause, and that pause doesn't really pick up again until chapter 9. What happens in between, of course, is the account of the flood. Now, when, when Noah is introduced... Uh, He's introduced as one who will bring comfort and relief from the work and toil. And that was part of the curse, wasn't it? The toil of the ground. It is through Noah that there will be hope. His unfinished record then leaves an opening for the story of the flood. And in some sense, the flood is an aside from the genealogies, which then again, as I've mentioned, they pick up again in chapter 9. Now, a few more thoughts to note on the genealogy. Um, One of the most jarring aspects of the genealogy, uh, particularly the uh, antediluvian or pre-flood portion, is the length of these men's lives. 
They lived a really, really long time. In light of the systematic use of 10 and 7, though some have come to the unnecessary conclusion that perhaps the ages are simply a poetic device. Now, I don't think that it's just simply a poetic device, but that is what some people tend to think. Now, there have been a number of theories proposed as to the significance of the various ages. Enoch, for instance, lived 365 years, which is actually equal to the days in a solar year. 365 days in a year, he lived 365 years. Now, some have suggested that because he lived righteously with the Lord, he was given the perfect amount of days and then was taken up. It's at least possible. Also, Lamech's age of 777 years, well, that might be significant for obvious reasons, right? Could be. Number seven is significant. Three sevens? If nothing else, a triple seven ought to get the reader's attention. And it would have for the Hebrew reader as it would for the Christian as well. In all these cases, though, in this regard, really one can only speculate. So we want to be careful. Uh, It could be interesting, but we want to be careful uh, because uh, really the best we could do on on some of this is speculate. Although there, there may be some reason on some of these to think more about it than others. It is possible, certainly, that these men simply lived a very long time and this is happens to be what they lived. It's also possible that these men both lived these ages historically and that their ages hold significance. God is not beyond doing that. God certainly could have had them live these particular lengths of days as a teaching point for us. We do not have to pit the historic against the symbolic in Scripture. These two things don't have to be in opposition to one another, contrary to all of the theological experts and commentators out there. As one other commentator put it, we have no reason to think that his, his artistic use of number is not restrained by real history. And so it's very possible that they lived these ages and that they, they lived these ages, God had them live these ages for a particular purpose. And finally, we'll note that the, prior to the flood, people lived longer Uh, an average of 800, almost 900 years, without much decline in their age. With the noted exception, of course, of Enoch, but he was taken into heaven. Now, after the flood, things change. After the flood, there's a steady decline in the ages of men all the way down into the patriarchs. Now, within the genealogy itself, there's some some other important things that are worth uh, noting. First of all, we read of Adam's death 800 years after Seth was born. Although Adam did not die on the day he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he did eventually die. It's worth noting, Adam did eventually die. But not before he saw generations and generations of his people come. Another significant character, of course, is Enoch. As mentioned already, he lived 365 years And with him, we see that the narrator breaks from the given pattern. Up to this point, the pattern had continued. 
But then with Enoch, we see a break in the pattern. He gives an explanation. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Again, this deviation from the pattern highlights his righteousness. This is another place where the reader would would need to pay close attention. And again, he's listed in the seventh spot in the the genealogy. This is often the favored position in Scripture. The covenant promises of God were strong as Enoch walked with God. Walking with God pictures a supernatural and intimate fellowship with the Lord. In other words, it's not simply the case that Enoch was a good and righteous man. Rather, he was in covenant relationship with God. And that's what's being highlighted here. The covenant relationship of God. Enoch uh, uh, holding that position in, in showing God's covenant promises being realized. And so it says that he walked with God. But then again, instead of saying that he died like all the others in the line, it says, and he was not for God took him. And again, the language here used is very similar to that used in speaking of Elijah, who was taken into heaven on a fiery chariot. Enoch was translated into heaven as a special blessing, and the writer of Hebrews tells us that he was a man of exceptional faith. And so Enoch, of course, is an important part of this genealogy. It's one where we should sit up and take notice now, Enoch's son was Methuselah, and, and he's significant mainly because he lived 969 years and is the oldest person recorded in the scripture. That's really why he's significant. Uh, in fact, I think sometimes we put a little bit too much significance on Methuselah. He's not actually as important as we tend to make him, but those before and after him actually are people we should be paying closer attention to. Um, and, and, of course, his son, Methuselah's son, is Lamech. And, and this is the next one that Moses highlights. Lamech's total years was 777, and he was the father of the one who would preserve the human race, Noah. And so while the Canaanite Lamech sought revenge for, for murder by murder for wrongs committed against him, the, the Sethite Lamech looked to God for deliverance. Noah fulfills this prophecy, at least in part, after the flood, when he becomes a man of the soil and plants a vineyard. Now, righteous Lamech was looking for rest. Through Noah, the human race is rescued. And thus the seed of the woman is spared once again. Jesus, of course, brings ultimate rest. And so in this way, Noah is a type and Lamech is a type of those who are looking forward just as the patriarchs of the Old Testament and all the Old Testament saints did as well. They were looking forward to this rest which was yet to come. And it's hard with these things in mind not to think that his age is in fact symbolic for the hope which is to come 777. You can be the judge of of that. And so just like the Canaanite genealogy ends with the birth of three sons, the three sons of the wicked Lamech, Seth's line ends with the birth of Noah's three sons. And the story of that line, which then we'll, we'll pick up in chapter 9 and verse 19.
And so as the Sethite genealogy comes to a close, uh, we then have a narr- another narrative epilogue in chapter 6, which describes the increase of mankind and the intermarriage of the two lines, the righteous and the wicked. Now, each of the first four verses of chapter 6 present various exegetical difficulties. In other words, this is a really, really hard section. One commentator suggests that this may be the most demanding passage in Genesis to interpret. And I will have to say I agree with him. This was hard this week (laughs) to study this. So there are three main interpretations which we'll look at. My approach, of course, is to look at the big picture. I think that's fairly clear. Mankind had increased, but so had sin, and so judgment was required. And so um, we begin this section, verses 1 and 2, which says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them as wives, any that they chose. So men were multiplying on the earth. They were increasing. This forms the connection between what had been recorded before and then what is to come uh, later. Adam and Eve had been told to be fruitful and multiply. They had been fruitful and multiplied, and their generations had been fruitful and had multiplied. Now, the first multiplication to read of after them was, of course, the Canaanite line, but then we read of the Seth line. So humanity was increasing, they were prospering on the earth. In a sense, we say, well, so far, so good, right? Man's increasing. This is great. However, the reason for God's judgment on humanity was an encroaching perversion throughout the earth, which is tied to, in this, what we just read, it's tied to the daughters of men being taken in marriage by the sons of God. And this contributes in some way to the decline of humanity. The exact meaning of this presents the exegetical challenge. What does this mean? First of all, we have the problematic expression, sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Now, some have defined this as the Sethite angels or or a dynasty of tyrants who have come from wicked Lamech. And others have said that it's angels. All of these can be defended by the Hebrew grammar. Hence the problem. So what exactly is meant by the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? Now, there are three views to explore. Now, I will try to make this as simple simple as I possibly can, but I'm just going to tell you now, you're going to want to pay close attention at this point if you want to get what I'm trying to lay down for you. Okay? Because this is complicated. Um, So I will do the best I can to make it simple for you. But I do want you to track along as you can. Okay, so the first view, and we're dealing with who are the sons of God. The first view, and this was the one, the most classic Christian view held by Calvin and Luther. And this suggests that the sons of God and the daughters of men are the intermingling of the lines of Seth and Cain. So in this view, the sons of God are the righteous seed, and the daughters of men are the wicked seed. Now, 
On the surface, this seems to fit the immediate context, contrasting the cursed line of Cain with the blessing of Seth. The difficulty with this view is that Genesis 6.1 says, when man began to multiply and daughters were born to them. The words being used here refer to humanity in a general sense and do not make any distinctions between the two lines. So if anything, it would be somewhat arbitrary to limit sons of God to the Sethite line and the daughters of men to the Canite line. In fact, it may make better sense in the context to connect the daughters to Seth because daughters are mentioned nine times in Seth's genealogy as having been born, but daughters are never mentioned even once in Cain's line. Thus the problem with the first view, with all respect to Calvin and Luther, is that there is nothing in the text which compels us to interpret this way, and if anything, what little evidence there is might point in a different direction. And so that in this first view, this first view is the intermingling of the lines, the sons of God being the righteous line. Now the next view for us to look at is the view that the sons of God are actually angels. There are some who hold that the sons of God are angels who had then intermarried with the daughters of men. Now this view has some popularity among many evangelicals in our day. But it is actually a rather ancient view held by um, in early apocalyptic literature, in the rabbinic tradition of Judaism, and even among some of the church fathers. Now the appeal of this view is the clarity of the sons of God being angels and the daughter of men being human. It just makes it very simple. Uh, This interpretation may inform uh, the understanding of 1 Peter 3, uh, 19 and 20, and also Jude 6 and 7, among some, and may, they may interpret it because, in light of under, that understanding. But, in this case, it does not fit the context of the flood, since the flood was against humanity and not against the angels. Not even among, and some have suggested that the problem was, you know, this is some sort of a human-angel hybrid which resulted from the union. But that's not what the flood was about. At least, in, in, you know, it's, not, it's maybe, you could say it's implied, but it's not explicitly. It is explicitly against humanity, though. That's clear. In addition, this interpretation contradicts the teaching of Jesus, who said that ne- angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. In fact, we just read that in Sunday school today. And so although there is an obvious appeal in this view, and I understand the the appeal in the view, I think it's a view we need to reject. Uh, We need to reject the angel-human hybrid theory because of the teachings of Jesus. Now the final view for us to explore sees the sons of God designation as referring to the tyrannical successors of wicked Lamech. Now this view sees historic support in ancient Jewish interpretation of the sons of God as referring to nobles, aristocrats, and princes. Sometimes princes and kings, 
important people were called the sons of God. Now, in this interpretation, these powerful tyrants married the daughters of men, perhaps, in this case, the daughters of the Sethite line. Now, the problem with this view is that it's not immediately clear what the violation is. It's like, okay, I I can understand the designations, but now what's the problem? So that's the problem with the view. Like, well, why is is this a violation of something that God uh, had said? Now, in support of this idea uh, is that it says that these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So it could be that these... Uh, po- these were powerful men, the, the Nephilim, the, the, these, these giants of men, powerful men, that who perhaps were demonically possessed or influenced in some way and were evidently characterized by physical might and military dominance. So these men violated the divine order by forming harems from among the daughters of men. Now a clue that may point us in this direction is found in the language of saw, attractive, and took. This is similar to Genesis 3, 6. Remember? Where it says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was the tree was desired to make one wise, and she took, and she ate of the fruit. The same language is being used of these men. They saw the daughters of men were attractive and took them. Okay? So there's a parallel in the language there. And so if, if, if this points us, if, if we're in the right, going in the right direction on this, uh, the idea then is that these powerful tyrants saw that the daughters of men were attractive, they took them, being driven not by spiritual discernment, but by lust. These were not women they were taking really to be wives. They were slaves. And they were were taking all of these women. This interpretation may best explain the statement, any they chose, in verse 2. By the way, this also fits with what we know about powerful men in the scriptures. Pharaoh, in, in chapter 12, certainly took any woman that he wanted. Why do you think Abraham was afraid of him? Oh, this is my sister. There's a reason. This is also true of David in 1 Samuel chapter 11. This also fits the immediate context of the flood and the themes of Genesis and connects the Nephilim and the sons of God. If, If this is the case, then presumably these powerful tyrants were polluting the earth in their disregard for the one flesh of husband and wife, They were taking any and all of the women they chose and thus were destroying the mandate of being fruitful and multiplying and thus the seed of the woman was threatened in some fashion. And in some sense then, maybe all three of the views have some validity to some degree or other. In other words, all three of these views are speaking into maybe what's going on here. There was certainly a mixing of the seeds from powerful, demonically possessed tyrants. But whatever the case is, and again, this is, a, this is very complicated, and you may find yourself saying, well, I don't agree with you. That's okay. 
Here's what we know. God was not pleased with man. That's what we know. God was not pleased with what was happening in his creation. And so, it says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Now, it may mean, this this 120 years, may mean that man will only, from now on, will only live up to 120 years. That is a very common interpretation, by the way. Um, But that would contradict the post-flood generation uh, up to the patriarchs who lived well beyond that. What this probably refers to, uh, although I wouldn't be dogmatic on this, but what this probably refers to is the span of time up to the flood. Up to the time that God had had said this to the time he brought the flood was now 120 years. And so here is the problem. Verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Previously, God had said of his creation that it was very good. Now, the wickedness of man was great throughout the earth. Man was corrupting the creation. So corrupt was man, in fact, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time, continually evil. What an indictment on man. This description shows the depth and the comprehensiveness of human depravity. The term heart encompasses all thought, feeling, volition, everything that's a center of what it means to be a human being. In other words, man was wicked to the absolute core. And so it was to be done. Verse 6 says that the Lord regretted having made man and that he was grieved to his heart. Man's sin had grieved God. It pained him. Regretted in Hebrew is is that uh, God, in Hebrew actually literally he changed his mind. Now, this would seem troubling on the surface. Whoa, wait, God God doesn't change his mind? Because God is unchangeable. But because God is unchangeable, it is not that he cha- it's not the same as him changing his mind in a human sense. God is not fickle. God's change of mind about the human race at the time of the flood is consistent with God's unchangeable character. God will not continue to bring blessing if mankind will persist persist in sin. And there's plenty of biblical examples of this. God always acts consistent with his nature. And so God was grieved in his heart, which is to say that God burned with rage against sinful man. What is, interesting, what is an interesting study is to compare the reasons for the flood in Scripture and uh, the, the reasons for the flood given in other cultures. For nearly every ancient civilization has a flood account of some sort or another. In the flood stories of Israel's neighbors, the Sumerian and the Babylonian myth show the gods debating the justification of a universal flood to destroy mankind. 
In these accounts, mankind had not done anything worthy of being destroyed. Uh, one Mesopotamian myth has the god Enlil bring about the destruction against humanity by a flood because human beings had become too noisy. Oh, they're just so loud. I've got I to gotta wipe them out. I can't sleep because of all their noise. The biblical account sets to rest any question as to why the flood came to pass. It came because of the absolute degeneracy of the human heart. Every inclination of his heart was wickedness. Man had become corrupt to the core, and so there was a need for divine judgment. And so verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now God's second speech makes explicit which, that which was implied before. He will radically undo that which he had created in Genesis 1. And there's an allusion in the language to chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, where mankind had been created and given dominion. And here God declares his absolute uh, his, his resolution to blot it all out. He will remove mankind from the face of the, of the earth along with every animal and creeping thing and bird. What had been very good was now distorted by wickedness and violence and must be undone for the creation was in moral, moral ruin and worthy only of destruction. And the closing words of the divine judgment repeat what had been said in verse 6, I am sorry that I have made them, which underscores again God's sorrow over what had come about to His perfect creation. God is not capricious like the other gods, like the other so-called gods. His actions are those of justice and righteousness and goodness, the creation must be judged. It needed to be judged. And in some sense, it could have been left there. God said, I'm going to blot the whole thing out. And been done. God could have wiped everything out, been done with the whole mess. But the, but the one other aspect of God's character, and again, God is consistent in His character. One of His character traits, his attributes, if you will, is his grace. And we see it here in verse 8. But Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There's hope. There was hope found in Noah, a man his father had prophesied would bring relief. Here, God will save humanity out of this wreck. And in this way, Noah actually points us forward to Christ. For Jesus saves humanity out of the ruin. Now, it's not that Noah is perfect. He's not like Christ in that sense, of course. But he did walk in the ways of God. Noah had been set apart by God. And so he found favor in his eyes. Noah, in that sense, is like the 7,000 men in the days of Elijah who had not bowed the knee to Baal. 
He is like the men where uh, there's danger of going to this place and, and you know, they're told to go because God has people in that city. God has His remnant. God spares His righteous remnant. And so even though there's judgment here to come, there was hope to be found in Noah. And so through Noah, God would save humanity from ruin, even as He brings judgment on the whole of the earth. And so what do we learn from this? Though God brings divine justice against the wickedness and total depravity of man, He is rich in mercy. God poured out His love upon sinners even as He was judging others. Noah had found favor with God because God had shown him grace and mercy. It is not that we loved God, but that He loved us first, sending the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for us. Noah went through the trial of the flood and saved humanity in the ark. Jesus went through the trial of the cross, and we are saved by His blood. What the genealogy of Seth and the judgment oracle of the flood remind us is that man is sinful, but God is merciful. God has set out to rescue His righteous seed, those whom He had poured out His mercy upon. He was saving us from our own wretchedness and from His righteous indignation against our sin. For we are sinners. In short, we can say that God was saving us from Himself. Something else we learn is this. The world is full of wickedness. You know, we often think that the world is as bad today as it's ever been. We think, oh, things are just so terrible now. But this is not true. The world has been far worse. And it was drowned in the waters of the flood as a result. God will once again judge the world for sin before it was in, by the waters of the flood, but on the day of the Lord, it will be by fire. But like Noah and his family, who were found to be in the ark and thus were rescued, those who are in Christ Jesus will also be rescued. And so who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your own supposed goodness? Or are you trusting in the King of Kings, the Savior, Jesus Christ? Are you, will you be found in Him? Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. And even as we read you know, something that's almost depressing uh, to see the... the the wickedness of of Noah's day. We think about the wickedness in our own day. We're encouraged by the very last line, but Noah found favor. And we thank you, O God, that you have found favor in us, not because we are so great, but because you have shown favor to your own son, Jesus. May we be found in Him just as Noah and his family were found in the ark and were rescued.
from the flood. May we be rescued in Jesus from our sin. We thank you that this is, in fact, the case. That your promises are true. That even even as we have read this this account of, of the genealogy, we see your preserving of your people. That you, your promise of the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent will come to pass. And in fact, has through our Savior Jesus Christ, who has crushed sin and death, that we may have life. We thank you. We give you all praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.